The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, March 26th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. I was thinking as we were preparing for today, when, or even maybe the better question is has, right? When or has gathering with God's people to worship, when did it or has it yet shifted in your heart from something you have to do, some kind of religious duty that you're responsible to participate in, when did it shift or has it even shifted yet from that kind of religious obligation to a delight for you? When did it begin to shift or, or has it even shifted yet from something you have to do to something that you get to do? I was thinking about that because I saw as we were preparing for this week that we were singing a song declaring that you have won the victory. And it hit me that to be able to sing that song with a full heart and a, and a clear conscience it presupposes that we know that there was a conflict, that there was a battle. Right? Victory only comes to the one who wins a battle. Right? Ever since the garden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God because they bought a lie and began to believe that they knew better for themselves than God knew for them, ever since there's been conflict. In that moment was born hostility between humanity and God. In fact, at writing to the church in Rome, in, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul will remind them that the natural mind is, is at enmity, hostility, battle with God. Ever since the garden, each of us is born assuming we know what's best for ourselves. Each of us is born into the deceitfulness of sin. We set out from the earliest days of our lives intent on building the kingdom of me. All of us left to ourselves are hostile in battle, conflict with God, kicking back against him, living in the darkness and deceitfulness of sin headed towards destruction. Right, so when we come and, and we sing, you have won the victory, we're not singing to ourselves. It's not a, a kingdom of me anthem. I've actually won the battle. No, we're declaring that God has demonstrated his eternal and unfathomable love towards us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still opposed to him, while we were still hostile to him, while we were still in battle with him, while we were still trying, scratching, and clawing to build and advance the kingdom of ourselves, Christ died for us. When the anger and arrogance of humanity was aimed at Jesus, he had every right to be outraged and return hostility towards us. But he didn't. Paul told the church in Colossae that Jesus instead made peace by the blood of his cross. Facing the reality of that cosmic conflict, God didn't avoid it. He entered into it, and in his son, he took what we deserved for our battle, for our treason, for our war against God, and he made peace. For all who would receive him, God has made peace. He's ended the hostility, and he has invited us into a life in his kingdom of peace. He won the victory. 
which is why Paul would go on to the church in Rome. In, in Romans chapter 8, when he talked about each of us born in hostility, that born with a, a mind and a heart and a will that was in battle with God, he would say where we were at war with God now, the Spirit of God dwells in you. There's a new heart a new mind, a new desire, a new affection that gives rise to new wants and new actions. You have a new heart. And the Spirit of God is taking up residence in you, which means you have a new power at work in you to pursue the things and the delights and the desires and the affections of this new heart, which means you have an absolutely new potential for the life that you live now. A potential not measured by your willpower, your tenacity, your wisdom, or anything like that, but by the very presence and power of God's Spirit alive and at work in you. His Spirit shines light onto that old part of you, that old self that keeps trying to claw and scratch and fight to build the kingdom of me. He helps you to see as he shines light on the remaining remnants of hostility in your heart, the coldness of your heart to his grace and peace towards you. He helps you to see more clearly the magnitude of God's mercy and kindness and peace. You find yourself saying, what a fool I've been to be at war with this God who loves me so much. What a fool I've been thinking I know what's best for me. What a fool I've been thinking I know what's best for everybody else. What a fool I've been trying to build my own kingdom according to my own way. It's this gracious, exposing work of God's spirit that, that makes a time like this, a gathering like this right now, not something we have to do, something that we get to do. We get to come together by the gracious mercy of God, knowing that I was at war with him. I, I thought I knew better than him. I've been trying to build my own kingdom in my own way and in my own life, blinded by sin, and he could have crushed me, but he didn't. Instead, he made peace. See, now we get to come, knowing the reality of the hostility existed that existed because of our own sin, because of our own blindness, because of our own arrogance, because of our own pride. And we get to be reminded again together of his kindness towards us that while we were still kicking against him, he made peace with us. We get to be reminded of reality according to his kingdom. And we get to stand amazed together of his love towards us in spite of our hostility towards him. Time like this moves from something we have to do for whatever reason you think you have to do it to something that we get to be a part of. We get to declare together that he's won the victory. He's made the peace. And now he says to all of us, if anyone would come after me, the peacemaker, let him deny himself. Let him deny that, that remaining hostility in his heart, that old self that continues to want to scratch and claw to build a kingdom of self in, in our own wisdom and wise in our own eyes. Let Deny that old self. Take up your cross daily and follow me. The peacemaker. I'm taking you, he says, to the fullness of life. This is what we've been exploring through the season of Lent. As we've been exploring not just Jesus' invitation to life according to his way, life in his kingdom, his invitation to the fullness of life, but 
those things that, that stand in our way on this great adventure of following him, of being with him, of keeping company with him, lies and pretensions and, and ideologies, right? That are alternative narratives of this life, this good life, this flourishing. Narratives that take our hearts captive. Narratives that seduce us. Narratives that feed that old self that keeps wanting to build the kingdom of me, leading us away from Jesus. We've talked a little bit about the arrogance of being those who are right. The nature and the danger of individualism, of busyness, of materialistic consumerism, all these narratives that that hold out to us a vision and a picture of what flourishing looks like, what the good life looks like, what life, the full, looks like, that lead us away from the peacemaker, the one who's invited us into his kingdom. As I was thinking about our time together this morning, I was reminded that in his most famous sermon, Jesus unpacks in a, in a very condensed way what, what life in his kingdom looks like, what true flourishing looks like. And he doesn't say flourishing is when you, I don't know, have a lot of kids or flourishing is for those who have a lot of money or flourishing are prestigious people in society or flourishing is being the busiest and the most in demand in society. He literally opens up his most famous sermon. You know what is the Sermon on the Mount? His most famous sermon on what life in his kingdom looks like by saying, blessed are flourishing. That's really what that word unpacked in our own language is pointing to, a type of flourishing and, and wholeness, right? He goes on to say that, that looks like having a poverty of spirit, hunger and thirst for righteousness, not just wanting good things and right things. No, it's present in humility and mercy. New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington said, Jesus in this sermon is offering and inviting his hearers into the way of being in the world that will result in their true flourishing now and in the age to come. He's offering statements of reality. This is how it works. This is how life with me and life in my kingdom actually works. It's what reality looks like. It's a life, one writer said, that defeats and dethrones. It's one of victory, right? It defeats and dethrones my designer life. And it does it with real joy, real love, and the real Jesus. To the Prince of Peace who has made peace between us and God through his life, death, and resurrection, the one who made former enemies hostile to him at enmity with him into family, the one who invites us into life in his kingdom of peace, says in that most famous sermon about life with him, blessed, blessed, flourishing, wholeness, the fullness of life. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. There will be a, a family resemblance. There's something about them that, that can't help but cause others to cast an eye towards me. And I got to thinking as I was preparing for the series, could there be a more powerful apologetic for the real Jesus than a people or a church of peacemakers in a day of anger and outrage? Could there be a more powerful apologetic? You might be familiar with the name John Perkins, civil rights leader. And Scott Saul wrote about a time when he was in a meeting with pastors in Tennessee and John Perkins was speaking. John was almost 90 at this point, right? He had seen a lot. He's lived through a lot. And in that luncheon while he was talking, 
John said this, this generation, and this was probably, I don't know, this was probably like, I don't remember how many years ago it happened. It was within the last decade. He said, this generation is the first to turn hate into an asset. As, as Scott would think about that, he's a pastor in Nashville, Scott Sauls, as he would think about that, he would go on later to write in his reflections in a culture of suspicion, mistrust, in a culture of us against them, whatever the subject is, politics, sexuality, immigration, income gaps, women's concerns, race, whatever the topic, the subject is, angst, suspicion, outrage, and outright hate increasingly shape our response to the world around us. Sadly, he was, he was writing to the church when he said that, and we'll get to that in a minute. But just to kind of paint a picture, in 2014, Slate Magazine, so we're talking 2014, we, we're not even talking post-2020 election, sickness, culture explosion. 2014, Slate Magazine, if you're familiar with Slate, released a, a collection of essays. And the collection was called The Year of Outrage, 2014. The Year of Outrage. From righteous fury to faux indignation, everything we got mad about and how outrage has taken over our lives. Titles of the essays, just to give you an idea, right? The Outrage Project, Identity Outrage, The Cultural Outrage Audit, The Year in Liberal Outrage, The Year in Conservative Outrage. My viral outrage hit, righteous outrage, and how outrage changed my life. <laughs> summarizing, if I could put it all together, pulling out a piece of what was written there, summarizing it best was this, outrage has become more expected than surprising, more normative than odd, more encouraged than discouraged, more rewarded than rejected. 2014, remember. A sick helping of emotional food and drink to satisfy our hunger for taking offense, for shaming others, and punishing them. Outrage has become something we can't get away from, partly because we don't seem to want to get away from it at all. It's 2023 now. It hasn't gotten a lot better. In fact, sociologists will say on this side of the last cycle of cultural upheaval, our nation is now at its most divided point since the Civil War. Particular polls, again, not done by the church, show that 60% of voters polled think that members of their opposing party are a threat to America. 40% called voting members of the opposing party evil. 20% called them animals. Among Americans who identify with a political party, right? There's an increasing number of Americans who don't. Among Americans who identify with a particular party, one in three, just do the math, one in three believe that violence could be justified to advance their particular party's goal. Hostility, anger has reached such a point that what we loathe motivates more than anything that we might be loyal to. And that's just politics. And here's the thing, I'm not particularly focused this morning on the wider world in a sense when it comes to this. I'm particularly concerned about the reality of this kind of anger and hostility and even outrage at work within the church amongst God's people. See, it wasn't long after Slate published that collection of, out, of essays on the year of outrage that Emma Green published her own article entitled Taming Christian Outrage, where she explored the possibility that we're as much a part of the problem as we are the potential solution. As I thought about talking about this in the series, I, I couldn't help but think about what the last few years could have actually looked like 
how different the last few years could have even been at Redemption Hill if we really believed that the way of Jesus, the life of flourishing, was found in being peacemakers. How could it have been different? How did the church become louder about what we were against rather than what we were for in life in God's kingdom? Thought about the last few years and and life at Redemption Hill and we don't have time to even answer it this morning, but take a minute and think, who in your life have you lost in the last few years? When I say lost, I don't particularly mean just passed away. I mean, who have you lost due to what you said or how you responded or what you thought about masks, anti-masks, nationalism, BLM, election results? What family members, what friends, what, what roommates, what people in your life are gone? I mean, you're still grieving. And it's probably been a slow burn in all of it, grieving people that we lost here at the church. I mean, for some people, we were too loud about some things and not loud enough about other things. We were, we were too quiet about some things and not quiet enough about other things. Whatever it might be. And all the loss, it It hurts. See, when Jesus was in his final moments with his disciples, he said, it's, it's by this. Here's the apologetic. Here's how all people will know that you're mine if you have love for one another. They're not going to know you're mine because your theology is tight. They're not going to know you're mine because you're more skilled and more tenacious in winning arguments than other people are. Because you've tightened the walls around the right group and around the right tribe. You know the forming tribes and defining enemies like this is just an escape route from having to deal with your own sin. That's really all it is. Because when you can have an enemy, when you can have someone to look at and point at like that, you can say, there's the problem. They're what's wrong with everything going on, right? Uh, we'll get to that later. I jumped ahead, right? Th- this love that, that Jesus is talking about, is, it's a love that reflects the risk and the pain of actually making peace. It's a love that requires and will reflect the risk that's involved in making peace because we'll, we'll look like the peacemaker. The family resemblance will become clear. You know, Paul reminded the church in Ephesus that the church, it was God's people, it was his redeemed family, former enemies made family by his grace that God has intended for all of eternity to put on display to the powers and principalities that their days were numbered. That their reign amongst humanity was coming to an end. A new kingdom has been established. A new kingdom is advancing. A day is going to come when that new kingdom is going to be fully and finally consummated. It was his people that were meant to be a living reflection, a living display of the powers and principalities underneath so much of this damage and chaos and anger and outrage. Their, their days are numbered. The new kingdom and the new way and the life in that kingdom is meant to be put on display by God's people. Blessed are the peacemakers. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, he says this. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. I'm more comfortable personally with the peacekeeping. Peacekeeping is just maintaining the status quo. And here's the problem. I've only begun to learn this about myself in my own life in the last handful of years. Peacekeepers will maintain the status quo even if the status quo is unhealthy. Because it's keeping peace that matters most. That's not what he says. 
He said, blessed are the peacemakers, implying that that peace is absent. It's not there. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. you'll, You'll look like the peacemaker. That's where he's taking us, right? Hey, if you've got your Bibles, just real quick. We're going to be in a couple of places. We're, we're, going to, we're going to land in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to stay there in just a minute. But I just want to show you what this looks like a little bit in Jesus' life, right? Mark chapter 2. Just a little picture. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. I'll just tell you where it is. It's the, it's the story of the calling of Levi or, or Matthew, right? Who was a tax collector. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 15, Mark tells us that Jesus went and reclined at the table. He ate at Matthew's house with other tax collectors and sinners. Now, here's the thing you've got to understand. You probably know this. You've been around for a while. You've heard us talk about it. If you watch The Chosen, they've done a wonderful job portraying this. Matthew, to his people, was a traitor. Levi was a traitor. He was an Israelite who took a position with the Roman Empire the Roman Empire would set a level of taxation upon all that it occupied. So the people of God living in occupied territory, occupied by Rome, had a certain level of Roman taxation. And Matthew, as a tax collector who was an Israelite but who worked for Rome, got to determine how much above the Roman taxation he would set and cause his people to pay. And he would profit off that difference. He extorted money from his own people for the sake of the empire. And he was a traitor. Tax collectors were loathed by Israelites. And Mark tells us in chapter 2 that when Jesus goes and he eats with Matthew, with other tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees, the, the most religious, the most morally right in everybody's eyes, right? They were outraged. Outraged by what Jesus was doing. See, we read this now and we think, man, that's a really cool strategy, right? We'll write some missional books about how cool that one is. But you got to read it in its context. It wasn't cool. It wasn't cute. It wasn't hip. It was offensive. What Jesus was doing was morally offensive to the church. But in that moment, Jesus was quite literally painting a picture of a new reality, redefining potential You read it now, and we read it through all these different lenses, but just take a moment at some point and think about this moment in in the week and and be honest with yourself in your own heart. There's somebody in your heart and in your mind who constitutes the idea of the other, right? They're the other ones. They're the ones that are the the biggest sense of threat to you, sense of threat to the well-being of the church or whatever it might be to you. You look at them with suspicion. You look at them with concern. There's somebody or some group, and I won't name any potential obstacles lest I offend anybody by naming them, but you have in your mind that, that constitute the other. That's what's happening here. Jesus is with them. And we do this because in the very next chapter, in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, right? We have Mark recording Jesus calling his 12 disciples to him. And he names out the 12 that are going to walk with him in a particular and unique way through the course of his ministry. And as he's naming them out, we get Matthew. And then we get a guy that Mark records as Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were Jewish nationalists, extreme Jewish nationalists. They were known as the Sicarii or the Dagger Men. Again, if you've watched The Chosen, they've done a great job with this. These Jewish nationalists were trained in the use of daggers and clandestine operations where they would would ambush, sneak up on Roman occupiers or Roman sympathizers, assassinate them without everybody knowing. That's who the nationalists were, who the zealots were. And now you've got a tax collector, a traitor, doing life with a zealot. 
You can imagine they probably had words. Anger and hostility and outrage were probably assumed. Their politics, their vision of life were incompatible with each other. Two former enemies, by the grace of God, have become family. Following Jesus. No record and word in any of the Gospels about their politics from this point forward. Because their life was oriented by a new king and a new kingdom. He's a peacemaker. And now his people are called to the family work. We're called not to win culture wars, but to follow him into peacemaking. And there's a million threads we could pull on this. And all of these are hard to even begin to touch on a little bit a week at a time. There's so many threads, but let's stick in Matthew chapter 5 and go to verses 21 through 26. You see, outrage on this grand and widespread scale on the world stage. At least in my current thinking, I I think it's just an amplification of an anger and an inability to deal honestly and openly with one another. I think in the church, we have a hard time dealing honestly and openly with each other. And I think if we could start there, dealing with the anger and the hostility, the peacemaking, it will begin to flow outward. Outrage, I think, is just an amplification of the anger and the inability we have to be honest within the church. So in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, Jesus is going to deal with his anger amongst God's people. Listen to what he says. In verse 21, he says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And it's fascinating there because we immediately go, yeah, he's just quoting the Old Testament. Well, if Jesus was quoting the Old Testament, he would have said, it's written. What he's doing is he's referring to what they have heard the teachers of the law say about the Old Testament, right? And what they're saying is that it's pretty simple. You murder somebody, you're going to get judged. That's really all it means. That's what they're saying. The law is pretty clear. But Jesus says in verse 22, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Right? In his day, there were, there were two main words for anger. One is kind of like a flare-up, right? Like a comet. It comes in fast and hot, and then it's gone, right? The other is like a slow burn. You can get stuck in it. It begins to color your perception and your, the way that you see life. A slow burn that might start with a sense of dislike, but begin to fan into the flame of resentment. This is the word that Jesus is using here when he says everyone who is angry with his brother. And notice that that anger he's talking about, this slow burn, this this dislike that can burn into a seething resentment even, it's all internal. Nothing's happened yet. And even its presence and its fanning into flame leaves one guilty. But then he says, whoever insults his brother. So now it's going to spill out a little bit. The slow burn is going to spread a little bit. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, the Sanhedrin. Right? Insults right there. Again, this is language capacity here. Insults right there. If you go look it up this week, it it actually uses a word that in Jesus' day kind of carried the freight of speaking of someone or speaking to someone in a way that that lets them know that they're nobody. They're a non-person. They're inconsequential. Right? It's a way of speaking to or about someone that ultimately expresses underneath out of that anger that you are so much better than they are. You're so much more than they are. Whoever says, you fool, 
literally, the word behind that is the word that we translate moron, will be liable to the hell of fire. In those days, that word fool, it carried the weight of a little bit of lack of understanding, but, but also moral corruptness. Now you're not just calling out someone's behavior, but you're beginning to shame them as a person. That is the essence of the culture, the cancel culture and outrage culture that we live in today. Now you're shaming him as a person. So here's Jesus doing Jesus stuff and, and helping us to see that the biggest problem isn't that particular person. The biggest problem isn't that particular group. The biggest problem really isn't out there. The biggest problem is me. The biggest problem is that old self, that remaining hostility, scratching and clawing to continue to keep up the kingdom of me. Anger and outrage that spills out. Anger that sees and burns and begins to color and then begins to spill out against one another. It, the problem's me. The prophet Taylor Swift was right. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. Me. Right? It's that old self's arrogant tendency to find a way to look down at someone else that leads to this lack of love, which gives way, as Jesus says, to murder. Not peacemaking. And this is how we treat one another, he's saying. This is brother and brother, sister and sister. This is how we treat one another. The cultural outrage, the cultural anger, it's just an amplified version of what's happening amongst us. Pride and and arrogance devour the love that's meant to mark us as his people. Paul's so clear in his letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 13, one thing that this love is not is proud. It's not arrogant. They're incompatible. But life in God's kingdom is to be marked by the honest and humbling light of his spirit that enables us to see that I'm the problem. I'm actually the problem. But at the same time, helping me see that there's something new at work within me and there's a new potential as defining me it helps me see the reality of of what's true about that remaining hostility in my heart that the qualitative difference the difference ultimately ultimately between me and if you've been watching the series at all alex murdoch you know you caught up in the alex murdoch murder case right the difference between me or you and him. It's quantitative. It's, it's not qualitative, right? I think it was Tim Keller who I first heard give this example, but he said, imagine you're holding an acorn in your hand. Here's what he's talking about, right? You got an acorn in your hand. In that acorn lies the fullness of an oak tree. And in that acorn, not only lies the fullness of that oak tree, but of all the acorns and seeds that will come from that oak tree, quite literally, in your hand lies the entire forest. It just doesn't have the environment and the nutrients necessary for its potential to begin to grow, right? But provided the nutrients, the setting, the environment necessary for it to grow, and you've got it all right there in that one acorn, put it in the right situation, it'll happen. The difference between me and Alex Murdoch, it's not qualitative. The same things are in me. The same potential is in me, right? The Holy Spirit helps us to see now that, man, my self-centeredness, my pride, my arrogance, my kingdom building... Man, it's all in me. I need his ongoing grace. It's the ongoing light of the Holy Spirit and life in God's kingdom that chisels away at my impulse to constantly insult, as Jesus says, 
or to begin to form opinions and then let them seethe into resentment about other people looking down on them, defining them as my enemy so that I can put the problems around me on them, not me. It's this ongoing light the Holy Spirit brings that helps us see ourselves more clearly. And we realize we're really not much different than them. And the ability to actually love is now possible. Pride and arrogance and self-centeredness, they're at the root of all of our anger and outrage with one another. Sometimes that stuff just takes a, a center stage. Right? But if I, I'm self-centered in the middle of my own world and nothing's more important to me than what I think and what I feel, you're going to be offended and angry all the time, all over the place, because the world is not designed to agree with you. When we get to the place in our hearts where I want you to agree with me and I need you to agree with me and then I expect you to agree with me, I'm only naturally going to be disappointed when you don't agree with me. And when you don't agree with me in that disappointment, I'll find a way to punish you for it. Maybe through my words, maybe through my action, maybe through my silence, right? Because you're the problem. I'm the victim. And now I can write you off. Resentment, scorn, all burn, all coming from that slow burning anger and contempt that our self-righteousness and arrogance has fanned into flame. It was Paul Tripp who said, what could be more significant than just our understanding of the theology of God's word and how we apply it to everyday life? Yet because of our anger, because of what we allow to seethe in us, you, we can't have these conversations unless we can begin to grant respect to one another because if we don't, they just degenerate into personal attacks. At that point, anything we have to say, content, it's gone. Helpfulness, gone. Learning, gone. Wisdom, gone. We're not helping one another and we surely don't walk out of that conversation with one another with greater awareness and greater standing. No, we walk out angrier. And listen, friends, this gets a very sober warning from Jesus. Very sober warning. Sin blinds us to the danger and the destructiveness of this anger. It begins to normalize the fruits of this anger, making us comfortable with them. Makes us comfortable with outrage, comfortable with disrespectful statements, comfortable with self-righteousness, always being the one who has to be right. And all of our technology and all the advancement, it just makes all that stuff easier and more amplified, right? Right? And that old self, that one still trying to build that kingdom of me, still in hostility. It is so satisfied feeding off of all of it. Because guess what? It feels good to silence somebody. It tastes good to that old self to walk away going, I won that one. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but it's destructive in the end. But if we're leaning into the Holy Spirit daily to help us to see ourselves because we know we're blind, then that kind of humility makes it hard to be so outraged and so arrogant because we know how just like everyone else we are. Blessed are the peacemakers. It costs to make peace. It costs Jesus his life. It's going to cost us the satisfaction that we get from anger and self-righteousness. We're going to have to deny that. It's going to cost us the comfort and the ease that we get from avoiding the places of difficulty and honesty that peacemaking require. We have to deny the old self, the ease of just ignoring it. Just letting things ride themselves out. That's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of making peace. 
This is what he gets to in the rest of the verses. If you can just read them in verse 23, he gives an example. If you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift and before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It's just an extreme picture, an extreme example of what Jesus is trying to say. I say extreme because remember, this is the Sermon on the Mount. He's in Galilee. The altar is in Jerusalem. He's saying if you've made that trip from from Galilee to Jerusalem with your sacrifice, with your offering, you've made that long walk there, and then you realize your brother back in Galilee has something against you, leave it there, go all the way back before you come all the way back again. It's an extreme example. But he's trying to make a point. If you know your brother has something against you, you know it, you're to go to them. Peacemaking takes priority. In fact, he'll, he'll say it later in Matthew chapter 18, on the other way around, if your brother's done something to you, go to them, right? Either way, whichever party you are, Jesus is going to explain that we're responsible for making peace. That we have a role to play in one another's lives. We have a responsibility and a role to play in one another's well-being and growth because he's made us family. And the reality is we avoid this like the plague. We like to let it sit and fester. We allow the disappointment or we allow the frustration or or we allow what, whatever happened to grow and fan itself into a place of resentment to where we're now seeing people, others in the church through that lens of anger and resentment, defining them by that. Rather than just going, risking the difficulty, risking the discomfort, and sitting down and saying, this is horrible. I was blind to my own arrogance in this. Can you forgive me? Right in verses 25 through 26, he's going to give another scenario where he just says, you need to deal with this quickly. Don't let it sit. Because you and I are called to live differently. To be peacemakers. The reality of it is our, our culture it says the exact opposite. So much anger, so much outrage, so much contempt, so much freedom to define people through that lens, even amongst God's people in the church. And friends, it has to be different. We are meant by the grace of God to reflect to the powers and principalities that their reign and their way is coming to an end. And it starts by just owning the fact that we're lousy at this kind of honesty. Lousy at handling our disappointment, our frustration, or our anger the way that Jesus would call us to. I am. I'm horrible at it. Just telling the truth. We're lousy at speaking honestly with one another, owning our responsibility and our part in whatever strife and hostility might exist. Actually speaking with one another, being rational about it and not being driven by our emotions and letting our emotions hijack the conversation and hijack the room and define the way we see, define the way we speak. I mean, I'm good at that. I'm good at shame. I am a skilled master technician in making you feel ashamed about something and letting that emotion take over how we understand what's going on. But honest, loving, peacemaking, risk-taking dialogue for the sake of one another's well-being and the well-being of God's people We're just not that good at it. Making peace is against the grain of our culture, but we've been graciously called to a new and different way. He's called us to a life more satisfying than 
a life of outrage and a life of slow burning anger Scott Sauls I'll let him end this again the life we've been called to has been modeled and provided by our gentle savior himself it's time as his people we go about the business of mending our fractured world with a presence that is far less combative than it is the flourishing of our witness depends on it and the good name of our savior is worthy of it friends I say all of this as a fellow sojourner in need of God's grace I mean, the last few years and the pressure cooker of all seasons and times, I did not always display the peacemaking love of Jesus. I haven't looked like him. But praise God, his grace not only forgives, it empowers, it transforms it reshapes and redefines. So friends, in a day of anger and outrage, let's run to the one who alone has the power to, to form and to mold our thoughts and desires, motives and actions of our hearts to look like him. Let me pray for us and then we're, we're going to take a moment to reflect and respond to God's word. Father, It's, it, it's been really easy to become comfortable with all the hostility and the slow-burning resentment in our world. Even amongst your people, it, it, it's, been, it's been easy to let that become a new normal. But you have called us to a more a deeper and a more satisfying way. Life in your kingdom according to your reality, to reality as it is, finds blessing in making peace. Lord, it's going to be a risk. We're going to have to be vulnerable. We're going to have to see that not only are you with us, but it's worth it. A place that we see that most clearly, Lord, shape our hearts by it as we see your peacemaking sacrifice in our place for our sins. Or may, may that be what shapes us. May that be what empowers us. May that be what moves us forward along your way. We ask this in, in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.